you've got your Bibles, I pray that you do. Let's go to Psalm chapter 118 today. Psalm chapter 118, um, we have some outlines up here if anybody needs one. Um, if you didn't get one, they're available. But um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday, if you notice the decorations today. We're going to be talking about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but the title of the message today is, The King Has Come. The King Has Come. Psalm chapter 118, I know you just sit down. <laughs> Y'all would. If you have the means and you're able, stand one more time. If you need to remain seated, that's okay. We just like to give reverence that this is uh, the Word of God. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me, and He set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper, and I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You can be seated. Today we get to look at another psalm. And I want you to understand that to get the fullness out of this psalm, you need to be able to picture in your mind what's actually happening. Now, in this psalm, what you're actually seeing is a royal procession. 
Now, I don't know how much you really understand about royalty. In our culture, we don't really, we don't really understand royalty. Um, we, we, don't, we don't stand in awe of Her Majesty or His Majesty. We, we, we just don't really get into, into royalty, again, because we, uh, we, we've never been in that culture. But I want to try to help you understand just a little bit. Thank you, brother. I want to try to help you understand just a little bit about what royalty was and how royalty was established and what exactly it meant, especially to Israel and to the people of God. The first thing I want you to see is what the people of God looked for in a king. I want you to understand what they were looking for. Let me help you understand this. God gave them what they were looking for. Now, it wasn't what He wanted them to have, but He did give them what they were looking for. Just a few scriptures to show you what I'm talking about. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1-6, through 6, we see the first example of, of what they wanted in a king. Sorry, he may not have that. Let me get to it. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1-6. through 6. Look at what this says. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and they perverted justice. So there I want you to notice. They wanted justice. They want somebody who would judge and who would give them justice when it was needed. But they were perverted and they took bribes. And so in verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So the first thing you notice is that what they wanted in a king was someone who would judge and judge rightly and judge not accepting bribes and being perverted in the law, but instead someone that would just judge in a right manner. Another thing they were looking for is they wanted somebody that exemplified status and beauty. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, I want you to notice here's where the first king comes from. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He was the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphi, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so one of the things we see there is that when they wanted a king, they were looking for somebody that had status in the community, somebody that was looked at as being a, a high-standing person. They wanted somebody that was a, a good-looking person that exemplified beauty and that exemplified strength. He was bigger than all the other people of the land. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, we see another example of what they were looking for. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head, and he kissed him and said, 
Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over His people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed. And then He gives you the sign in the, in the next verses. But the point being is this. They wanted somebody that exemplified beauty. They wanted somebody that when they looked at Him, He was a representative head of God, and they gave justice to the people. He wanted somebody that led the people and they would save them from all of their surrounding enemies. And you notice in the psalm when we read, I was surrounded by enemies, they were like bees, and yet in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They're in a royal procession marching toward the temple. And as they're doing this, the king is giving his testimony of all that the Lord has done for him personally, and because God has done it for him as a king, guess who else has got to have the benefits of being saved from enemies? The kingdom. Because the king has defeated all the enemies. Because the king has, has led them and given them justice and showed them the beauty and the strength of the Lord. Because of them, the kingdom gets to enjoy it. And so that's what, that's what the people look for in a king. Now God looked for the same things in a king. However, He wanted one who exemplified His beauty, His strength. He didn't want a king that showed how strong they were. He wanted a king that showed how strong He was. God wanted a king that followed Him after His own heart. God wanted a king that trusted in Him and so that even when if He was a little bitty dude, He could defeat a giant with a sling and a stone. God wanted a king that when you looked at Him, you saw God. You didn't see Him. Let me show you that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. When they came, and this is Samuel, he's coming to anoint David, but he don't know that he's looking for David. Y'all know this story, right? He don't know he's looking for David. But he knows that he's supposed to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, comes in front of Samuel, and Samuel looks at him. And he's big, he's tall, He's a good-looking man. He's everything that the people would want in a king. And when Samuel sees him, here's Samuel's response. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, this is the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature like the people did. But instead, I have rejected him based on height and stature and based on outward appearance. For the Lord does not see man as man sees man. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So again, what I'm trying to get across to you is that the king, alright? The king and royalty was a representative of God. They were there to give the justice of God, to lead the people to exemplify the beauty and the, 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 the power and the strength and the might. And so when the people celebrated the king, ultimately, who were they celebrating? God. And so a royal procession was a great celebration. And the celebration was indeed celebrating the king 
and the king's victories, and the king's leadership, and the king's strength, and the king's beauty, and the strength, and the king's power. But ultimately, it was supposed to point toward God because he was just a representative that relied on God for all of his victories. Everybody tracking with me? What you see in Psalm chapter 118 is you see a royal procession taking place. We have a few examples of this, and Song of Solomon chapter 3 uh, is one of them. And I think I put another one on your outline if you see it. And then there's another one in Psalm 45. There's many royal processions in the Bible. This is one I want to bring out today. The writer of Song of Solomon is watching Solomon's procession, his royal procession coming up out of the wilderness. And he says, what is that coming up from the wilderness? It's like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. And what was happening was this. They were carrying these bowls of incense and frankincense and myrrh and all of these and they were burning it and there were so many that were burning the incense going before the king that it looked like columns of smoke coming up out of the wilderness when this king is coming up the valley. And then he says here, Behold, it is the litter of Solomon or the carriage of Solomon. That's what it is. Or the, the royal bed of Solomon. It may have been a rolling carriage. It may have been one that they were carrying the king on. We don't know, but it at least describes it here in a minute. But he says, around it are 60 men, some of the mighty men of Israel. So try to picture this in your head. Columns of smoke coming up from the priests that are offering incense. The carriage of the king is coming up, surrounded by 60 mighty men of God, each of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of pure gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Here's, here's the point that I'm trying to get. The royal procession was a magnificent celebration. When the king is coming down the road, this is one of the most extravagant events you've ever seen. I spent the week on YouTube. Now, hear me out, alright? I wanted to understand royal processions. I watched British processions. Marvelous. I'm talking about horses that never end. Carriages of gold pulled by the most beautiful horses you've ever seen. I watched royal processions in Egypt as they transported the mummies of their pharaohs from one building to another. A display like you've never seen before in your life. Go look it up. Beautiful, beautiful, magnificent celebration. I watched royal processions in, the, uh, in Thailand. I watched royal processions in the Dutch. I, I, I watched royal processions in, in um, the, the, the Congo, I believe it was. Or the Tongo, maybe. I don't know. I watched royal processions from every culture I could possibly find. And every one of them, even though they're different in their ways, they all are the same in the way that they understand royalty. 
This is our head representative. He has been put in place by the God that we serve. And when we celebrate Him, we celebrate the beauty of God, the strength of God, the, the, the majesty of God. We celebrate the royalty of God. And so I want you to picture, go back to Psalm 118 with me now, and I want you to picture in your head a royal procession going down the road, headed toward the temple. And the king is on his way, led by priests who are offering up incense to God, and they are singing to the Lord. And the king starts speaking his own personal testimony. And we'll see it here in just a few minutes. Before I get there, I want to give you four things. If you got your outline, you'll see it. Four things very quickly that you need to know before we study this psalm. The first thing you need to know The Jews and all Israel knew that this psalm, Psalm 118, ultimately pointed to God's coming King. They knew that when God's King came, He would exemplify everything we read in this psalm. Let me prove it to you. Luke chapter 19, verse 38 and 39. When Jesus comes in, what we celebrate, Palm Sunday, when He comes in, the triumphant entry... From the, from the city of Bethany to Jerusalem. He's riding on his donkey. Not a, not a horse like you would expect because in this day, if a king came on a horse, they were coming for war. If a king came on a donkey, they're coming in peace. And so Jesus didn't come in violence. Jesus came like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Never opening his mouth. But when Jesus comes back in Revelations 19, does anybody know what He's coming back on? He ain't coming back in peace. Peace is done. All right. But the people, when Jesus comes in, begin to sing this psalm to Him. And they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, when they heard them repeating this psalm to him, they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Why do they want them to rebuke them? Because they know this psalm is meant for who? The coming king. This psalm is meant for God's Messiah, God's anointed one. They knew that. And when they heard them singing this psalm to him, they were indignant. The people had seen all the work that Jesus had done. If you go study this story, before Jesus comes in, He performs all kinds of signs. And right before this happens, He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And people that He is with, a great crowd is following Him. I'll show you that here in a minute. And a great crowd has heard about it in Jerusalem. And by the time He gets halfway to Jerusalem... The crowd is coming with Him that has seen all that He's done, and they believe He's the Messiah. And then the crowd in Jerusalem that are gathered for Passover, thousands upon thousands, they come out because they hear He's coming, and they meet Him, and they all converge in the middle with Him on His donkey, and they begin to all lay their cloaks out in front of Him as a sign of submission and surrender that you are the King, worthy of worship. And then they take the palm branches that are symbols of of victory and symbols of authority and they lay them in front of Him and He travels along His way to the temple. And what you see in Psalm 18, or Psalm 118, is a picture 
of what Jesus does on the triumphant entry on this day. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 14 through 16. You'll see this again. And this is where Jesus had already come on His donkey. He's went through the gate and now He's in the temple and the children have palm branches still. And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, and they saw the children crying out in the temple. And what were they crying out? Hosanna. Hosanna is just a Hebrew word that means save us now. Save us now. So again, you go back to 118, and this was the prayer that they prayed to the coming king. So when the priests heard the children saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, what does it say about them? They were what? Why would they care that the children are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David? And then Jesus says to them, or the scribes and the Pharisees say, Do you hear what these children are saying to you? And Jesus said to them, I sure do. I sure do. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? The point is this. Everybody knew that this psalm was about the coming King. That's the first thing. Second thing you need to know, many of the Psalms ultimately pointed toward Jesus. Look at Luke 24, 44 through 45. Then He said to them, this is Jesus, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Here's the point. Jesus told His disciples, when you read the Psalms, who are you reading about? You're reading about Him. Everything written in the Law of Moses, everything written in the Prophets, everything written in the Psalms, everything written in your Bible, it was about Him. And so, when you read the Psalms, the Jews knew it, and now you need to understand it. The third thing, this psalm was sung to Jesus, and I've already told you this. It was sung to Jesus on the day of His triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, so that's important. This psalm was sung to Him because they believed that He was the coming King. And then the fourth thing, it was also sung by Jesus as the last song before He went into the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the Last Supper when they were celebrating the Passover feast and Jesus is telling them, um, I'm going to die. You're all going to, the sheep are going to be spattered, uh, scattered. Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Look with me at um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. Notice what it says. And when they had what? Hadn't you ever wondered what they sung? I can tell you. They sung. Psalm 118. How do I know that? There is a Jewish tradition that, that they do during Passover, always have, called the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms, Hallel just simply means praise. The praise Psalms. You ever heard the word Hallelujah? Here's what Hallelujah is. Hallelujah is the word Hallel, which means praise. Yah, which means Yahweh. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that means praise Yahweh, praise Jehovah. And so what we have is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 
are the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And they celebrate the deliverance of God's people from Egypt into the Promised Land. And it ends with Psalm 118. During the Passover, they sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 at the beginning. And at the end of the Passover, they sing Psalm 115, 16, 17, and 18. 18 is the last one they sing. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The very last thing that Jesus sung before He went to the Garden of Gethsemane is Psalm 118. Now think about this. Go back with me to Psalm 118 for just a minute. Look at the king's testimony starting in verse 5 of Psalm 118. And think about what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you got a Bible, you'll want to see this. 118 verse 5. Out of my distress. Out of whose distress? My. This is the king. This ain't the nation singing. Out of my. Singular. Out of my distress. I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord. I will get into that here in a minute, but here's the point. When you lay what Jesus did as the true coming King over top of Psalm 118, you see that He is the King being led in royal procession to the temple to give thanks to the Lord for the victory that the Lord has accomplished through Him, through what He has done. So now let me outline this psalm for you and we'll go through this part a little bit quicker than the rest of it. That was the biggest part of it. Psalm 118 is outlined like this if you want to study for your notes. Verses 1 through 4 is the king's command. As the king is leading this procession, as it's being led or he's being led, he's giving a command as he, as he walks along, alright? And then, so verses 5 through 18 are the king's personal testimony. Verses 19 through 24 are the king's praise. The king's praise. Verses 25 through 27 is the kingdom's prayer. The kingdom prays. Alright? And then in verses 28 and 29, we have the king's confession and the king's command. Alright? Because it ends with the same command he started with. So let's look at these one at a time. Verses 1 through 4, the king's command. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 118, look what he says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The king has personally experienced that God is faithful. God has delivered me from all of our enemies. God has given me victory over all of our enemies. God is good and His steadfast love endures forever and ever. And y'all ought to give thanks to Him for what He's good, for His goodness. But then look what He says. This is the command. So who should give thanks? In verse 2, let Israel say, 
His steadfast love endures forever. So the, the nation of God's chosen people ought to say and ought to give thanks by saying, God, your steadfast love endures forever and ever. You have delivered us from our enemies. God, you have saved us. You have been good to us. And then in verse 3, let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever and ever. The priesthood ought to say this. Many believe that this psalm was actually written by David when he is ascending to the throne for the first time. You remember what happened right before David ascended to the throne? Remember what happened to the house of Aaron? What did Saul do to those priests? He killed them. He tried to wipe out the priesthood. The house of Aaron <laughs> ought to look at the Lord and say, He is good. We shouldn't be here. But He saved us, and we are. The house of Aaron ought to say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Here's what he's saying. Everyone who has ever experienced the goodness of God in any way, and especially those who have learned that His steadfast love endures forever and ever, you ought to give thanks to the Lord. It's the King's command. The king commands you to do so. Jesus commanded this in John chapter 13, verse 31 through 32. Look, he says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The point being, the king commands this. If you see the glory of God in the victory that I've done, it, it, then the point being is that I glorify God the Father. Everything that I do. John chapter 14, verse 13, look what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. We ought to give thanks to God because His steadfast love endures forever and ever. Now go with me one more, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. So again, the King commands. The King commands. When you look at the King and you see what He has done, you need to understand that it was done through God the Father. And God has glorified the King so that through the King, God Himself will be glorified. And anyone who has experienced this in any way ought to give thanks to the Lord because He's good and His steadfast love endures forever and ever. Next, we have the King's testimony. Verses 5 through 18. Notice, instead of uh, calling out to people to give thanks, he moves into his personal testimony about why God is good. How does David know that God is good? How does Jesus know that God is good? Well, of course, Jesus is God. But let's look at it again. Jesus as a man. How does Jesus as a man know that God is good? Well, here's the personal testimony. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. He answered me. He set me free. This is the king's personal testimony. And they are proceeding to the house of the Lord. Picture it in your head. Incense is being offered up. They're going up the road. They are marching toward the temple to give their thanks 
The king is commanding, everybody ought to come with us and give thanks. Everybody who's experienced this ought to give worship to God. Come with us, join us. And this crowd is gathering together and they're marching down the road and they're heading toward the temple. And all of a sudden the king stops and he says, Hey, out of my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me and he set me free. Now, did David have a right to say that? You better believe it. David had called on the Lord so many times. And so David has experienced this in his own life. And then notice what he says next in verses 6 and 7. He says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear man. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord is on my side. I know this. I've experienced it. I've seen it. I will see the victory. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says, he says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Look with me at John chapter 18, verse 11. Now look at what Jesus said to Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 11. Give him just a minute. There it is. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What was Peter trying to do? What had he just done? Just cut the high servant of the one that was trying to arrest him off, right? You know why? Because Jesus said it's better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in man. Peter, I love you. I love all my disciples. And if my kingdom were of this world, y'all could fight. Look where I see that at. In um, John chapter 19, verse 2. John chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. So Pilate said to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And so again, the point being is this. And Pilate asked Jesus, I didn't give him this scripture, but y'all may remember it. Pilate asked Jesus, he said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you've said it. He said, but my kingdom is not of this world. Because if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight and would not have let you capture me. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is of another world. Here's the point. Go back to Psalm 118 and read this again in verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Didn't Jesus prove that? Verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You remember what he said to Pilate? Pilate said, do you not know that I have the power to give your life to you or take your life from you? In other words, you can trust in me just, just listen to me. Do what I say. I can save your life. Jesus said, no. No. You only have power that God alone has given you. I don't trust in you. I trust in the Lord. And then in verse 10 through 13, look at what the next testimony is. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. In other words, there were enemies all around me. There were enemies everywhere, but in the name of the Lord, the king... Cut every enemy off. Verse 12. 
They surrounded me like bees. They surrounded me on every side in verse 11. They went out like fire among thorns in verse 12. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. There is not an enemy that our king did not defeat in the name of the Lord. And as this king is making his procession to give thanks to the Lord in his holy temple, he reminds the people, look what God has done for your king. And as a result of what God has done for your king, guess who gets to reap the benefits of it? The kingdom. And you are to give thanks to God because through the king, God has cut every enemy off. Keep going with me in verse 13. I was pushed hard. Now some versions may read, the enemy pushed me hard. And that's what it means. Would you agree that the enemy pushed Jesus hard? I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And then in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and He is my song. Jesus glorifies God here in His personal testimony as His strength, as His joy, as His Savior, as God being the valiant warrior that has brought Him the victory. And then in verse 15, he says, Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And then in verse 17, he, he, um, uh, he continues his testimony. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Now listen, Jesus here in this context, he's not talking about a temporary death. We know Jesus did die. Did he not? But did Jesus stay dead? No, he didn't. So again, we see him talking about the goodness of God and the fact that he lives and he recounts the deeds of the Lord to praise them with all the people. Verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely. You say, well, that don't sound right. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on Him, the Son, the iniquity of us all. Now go back and read that verse with me again in Psalm 118, verse, uh, verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Would you agree with that? The king was disciplined severely for our transgressions, but he has not given me over to death. Verse 19. Now we move into... <clears throat> the king's praise. Remember, the king has been leading the people. He says, listen, everybody ought to give thanks to God because he's good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let me tell you my own personal testimony. And now he comes back and he says, now let me give the promised praise that I said I was going to give. So in verse 19, he says, hey, priests, 
Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Which is exactly what Jesus was doing when he was going down that road headed to Jerusalem that day. He was going to the eastern gate headed for the temple to clean the temple to give praise to the Lord, to heal the sick, to conquer all the enemies. He was doing all of this when he was going down this road. And he cries out, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then the priests respond in verse 20. The priests cry out from the temple and they say, This is the gate of the Lord. The gate that you're fixing to go through is the gate of the Lord. You know that gate is shut today? That gate is shut today. The eastern gate. And it won't be opened again until He comes through it. Keep going with me. This is the gate of the Lord. And the righteous shall enter through it. And Jesus indeed was righteous. Verse 21. I thank you. This is His personal praise. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is the praise he's given? I was the stone that the building was supposed to be built on, and yet the builders of God's house, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of those, they rejected it. They said the stone's not good enough. In this day and time, if a stone wasn't good enough to go into the building, they would take that stone and cast it aside. The stone that the builders looked at and said, it won't do. They cast it aside. And yet God, through His victory, has took that rejected stone and He has now made it the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone in this day and time was the stone that was laid so that everything else that was laid according to that stone matched that stone. And this is how we kept the the levelness and the squareness of it. And everything was cornered off of this stone. And he says that he has took the rejected stone, the one that the builders looked at and said, it's not good enough. And God has made it the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 23 and 24, look at what the look at what David says. This is what the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now think about it. If David wrote this when he is ascending to the throne, y'all still with me? I ain't lost you yet, have I? If David wrote this when he's ascending to the throne, he's been rejected for so long. He was the one that God anointed to be king. And how long did it take him to get to the throne? It took him a while. And he finally gets to the throne and he's being received as the king. And he says, I was the stone that the builders rejected. Yet God has now made me the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and that alone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. We love the king that God has put before us. We love the king that the builders rejected, and yet we see him for who he is. 
It's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so in verse 24, we sing this in a song a lot, but the point is, he's talking about God making Jesus the king through defeating all of our victories on the, uh, all of our enemies on the cross. And here he says in verse um, 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then we move in verse 25 and 27, the kingdom's prayer. Now notice, save who? What does it say there? Us. We're not talking about I thank Him out of my distress. He saved me. I cried out to Him. No, now we move to uh, plural pronouns. And the kingdom begins to pray. And they pray to the King and to the Lord and they say, save us or Hosanna is the way you would read it in the Hebrew. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Hosanna. Save us now, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here we just simply get a blessing that they, that they bless the, the king with. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's coming in your name. We bless him. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This could be the priest's response. From the house of the Lord, they say, we bless you from the house of the Lord. He's coming into the house. The priests are already there. And as they're coming in, the people are crying out and praying, Lord, bless him. Lord, bless our king. Because if you bless our king, you bless us. You save us. And then from the temple, the priests cry out, we bless you from the house of the Lord. And then in verse 27, the Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. This is, this, is their, this is their prayer. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Ain't that amazing that when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem that, that day on that donkey, they were celebrating, but they didn't know that they were actually leading the festal sacrifice right into the gates of the temple. And the sacrifice was the king himself, bound, bound, and tied, and given his life for all the kingdom. Verse 28 through 29, we have the king's confession and the king's command. This is the end of it. Notice in verse 28, the king, we're back to, we're back to singular pronouns. See this? You are what? My. We're not talking about save us. We're back to singular. Now the king is crying out again. And he says, this is my, this is my confession. You are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. And I will extol you. And then in verse 29, he gives the command that he started with. And think about this. The king is just simply saying, look at what the Lord has done for the kingdom and what He has done to the king. Look at what the Lord has done for you. Even though the king went through distress, even though the king was a sacrifice that was bound, even though the king was surrounded by enemies like bees and, and, and on every side of him, 
Even though the enemy faced, even though the, the king faced every enemy on our behalf, on his own. And now he still comes and he says, I bless the kingdom as a result of this. So you ought to give thanks. You ought to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good. For his steadfast love endures. How long? Forever. Is there ever coming an end to this kingdom? Is there ever coming an end to this king? Never. And so what do we do with this psalm today? Well, there's just a couple things. The first thing is this. One day there's going to be another royal procession. And on that day, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. Look with me at Revelations chapter 19, verse 1 through 16. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Remember, the king commanded, we ought to do what? Give thanks. Crying out. Hallelujah! Praise Yahweh. Salvation and glory and power. Where did we see that at? In the king. But they belong to who? God. Why? For His what? What was it we wanted in a king? Judgments. And His judgments are true and they are just. And he's proven it when he comes and he judges the great prostitute of the world who corrupted the earth with her, immor her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, and here's the king, all right? He's given the command. From the throne comes a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. And give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are the true words of God. Then I fell down at His feet to worship Him, but He said to me, you must not do that. I'm your fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, what? And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called 
is the Word of God. If you were in Sunday school this morning, pay attention. And all the armies of heaven, here you are. Now here's where I'm getting to. Here's the point. One day, church, there is going to be another royal procession. Guys, you want to make sure that you are a part of this. If you are not a part of this multitude, it's not going to be a good day for you. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This week is Holy Week. It begins today. And this is the day that we celebrate Jesus declared as King. He begins His royal procession to defeat all of His enemies and save the people of His kingdom. I'm going to send out Scripture every day this week. If you have the, the church text, you'll get it. I'm going to send out Scripture every day this week, and I'm going to each day show you Scripture of what He was doing every day of this Holy Week so that you can follow along with Him. I'm praying for one thing. I'm praying that it'll lead you to see the last royal procession of the king, which was him coming in peace to conquer all of his enemies by his own death on the cross, so that you can see it and believe it, celebrate it, give thanks for him because he is good, praise God for it, and then when we come together Sunday morning to celebrate the fact that he is not dead, he is alive. And one day, he's coming back on another royal procession. And when he does, you and I need to be a part of that procession. If y'all would stand this morning, we're going to have a time of response. I don't know um, how you would respond to this. Here's one thing I'll say as the worship team comes. Jesus said the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And he said this, if anyone falls on this stone, they will be broken. But if this stone falls on anyone, they will be crushed to powder. You got two choices. You can either be broken by this stone, and that's a good thing, because He breaks you for your sin. He breaks you in surrender, and you humble yourself before Him. Or you can one day be crushed to powder by this stone.